Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Anyone who knows me very well knows that I'm not really a movie person. And don't test this after the service. I Don't ask me if I've seen it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I haven't, I haven't seen Back to the Future. Uh, I haven't seen Star Wars. I saw The Phantom Menace. I've been told that doesn't count. So, okay, fine. I haven't seen Star Wars. Um, it's not like any principled reason that I'm not really a movie person. I, I spend probably the same, if not more time, listening to podcasts, and not podcasts that, that like matter, you know? Uh, I just recently sent a podcast to our director team about roundabouts. It is fascinating, by the way. So if you want that, just ask me after the service. But apparently there's a club about roundabouts. They get together, they study roundabouts, they go look at roundabouts, they rate roundabouts. They call themselves, I'm not making this up, they call themselves the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) It's awesome, right? So uh, I just recently saw Lord of the Rings, by the way, um, like a month ago. So I'm 20 years behind. I'm not really a movie person, um, but a, a movie series, you might say, that I have enjoyed over the years uh, has been the Oceans movies. Have you seen the Oceans movies? 11, 12, 13, right? Um, really, any heist movie is kind of fun. It's interesting. I, I know thievery is immoral. I get that. But it can also be really creative, right? And so you can kind of appreciate it in some ways. Uh, there's some creativity in it. But if, if you haven't seen the Oceans movies, particularly the, the uh, Oceans 12, the middle child of the series, um, here's, here's kind of the plot of it. And don't, you weren't going to watch it this afternoon, right? Like, if you haven't seen it by now, you didn't want to. It's like 20 years old. So um, I am going to spoil it, all right? So Danny Ocean and Rusty Ryan, this is the George Clooney, Brad Pitt pair. Uh, they um, are found by Terry Benedict, who is the owner of the three casinos that they heisted in Ocean's Eleven. And so upon threat of death, Terry Benedict uh, requires that they pay back everything they stole from him, plus interest, $97 million. And so uh, this puts them in a bit of a predicament because being wanted criminals, the Ocean's crew doesn't really have a lot of options as to how they can actually make this money to pay uh, Terry Benedict back. And every heist they do, they find that they've been beaten there by someone called the Night Fox. Now, the Night Fox turns out to be, turns out to be the, the wealthy Frenchman, Francois Toulour, and in a turn of events, Toulour challenges them to a bit of a duel, a heist duel, you could say, to figure out who is, uh, who's the best thief in all the world. And so they are going to go after the same object to see who can get it first. And the thing that they're racing to steal is the famous... Fabergé coronation egg. And if the Ocean's crew wins, Tallur will pay off their debt. And if Tallur wins, I suppose Ocean's crew will be killed, I guess. And he gets, and Tallur gets the, you know, the glory of being the greatest thief in the world. And the rest of the movie is about how Tallur and Ocean's crew uh, race to steal this egg. And it seems as though, here's the spoiler, at the end, it seems as though Tallur has won. Until... Danny Ocean reveals in a matter of three minutes, over the course of three minutes, basically the whole movie kind of replays and fast forward, and Danny reveals to Tallur and to us how it was that 
his crew actually stole the real egg and Tulur stole a replica. In three minutes, everything is revealed. Everything is brought together. Things you didn't see are now shown. Things you did see are now put together and it makes sense. As we get to the end of Ecclesiastes this morning, the final seven verses of the book are like the last three minutes in Ocean's 12, and that the last seven verses bring it all together. Now, if you remember when we started off the book of Ecclesiastes, we said that there are actually two voices, that we have the voice of the teacher who is speaking for 99% of the book. So if, if you weren't here the first week of Ecclesiastes, but you jumped in at some other point, we've been hearing from the voice of the teacher for the last two months. But then there's also the voice of the narrator. Now, the teacher has spent this whole time assessing various aspects of life, basically in search of the answer to this one very important question. And it's not a question that's unique to the teacher, actually. It's a question that each and every one of us in this room have to answer. And not only that, it's, it's a question that you actually already are answering. Whether you know it or not, you probably haven't sat down and considered the answer to this question and really thought it out, but the way that you're living your life, the decisions you're making, the decisions you aren't making, the things you're doing reveal what you believe to be the answer to this question. And the question is, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Where is the good life found? And after all this exploring, the various topics that we've gone through over the course of our walk through this book, the teacher concludes that verse 8, absolute futility, says the teacher, everything is futile. What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? Where is the good life found? He's basically saying, can't be found. Can't be found. It's all futile, it's all meaningless, it's all vanity. That's, it's this little Hebrew word, hebel, that we've been talking about that, that literally means vapor, that life, according to the teacher, is like a mist. As much as you try to grab it, it'll dissolve before you can ever get it. Or if you can grab it, you can't actually hold on to it. There is no real substance. It slips through your hands. And the challenge that we've had as we've walked through the book of Ecclesiastes has been to see that while the teacher has certainly had plenty of good and even, even true things to say about life, the challenge has been to recognize that his voice is not the only voice. And his assessment and conclusion is actually not the final word. And so it's as if the narrator for the last two months has set before us a person who has looked for the good life in all of these things and yet has come up empty, the narrator then comes in here at the end and brings us to a conclusion. He brings us to a conclusion. He gives us an actual answer to the meaning of life. See, this suggestion that you could come to a conclusion, that you could actually give an answer to this question is actually fairly offensive in our world today. The idea that one could actually consider something, think about it, ask questions, take it in, give it consideration, and come to a conclusion 
In a postmodern society where everything is relative, where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, everything is up for interpretation, this even idea that we could come to an answer on a big question like this is seen as fairly absurd. Because to come to a conclusion is to claim to not just have questions, but is actually to claim to have answers. Not just that you're searching, but that you've actually found something to actually have some level of certainty. This is offensive because if all truth is relative, then certainty in anything is to suggest that there aren't always endless options, that there aren't always infinite, infinitely viable interpretations, that you just do you and I'll just do me and everything can be okay. To come to a conclusion suggests that on some level there is actually objective truth to be had in this world. Now, perhaps for you, your aversion to conclusions or your aversion to answers isn't because you're like, isn't because you've been sucked into this like um, postmodern relativity vortex, right? Like you, maybe you would go, no, I do believe in objective truth. I believe that there's right and wrong. I believe that there's good and evil. Like I believe in those things. But maybe for you, the idea of coming to a conclusion is scary. Having an answer is scary is simply because to come to a conclusion means that you have to make a decision. Perhaps this is why you've changed your major like 10 times. And making a decision feels like shutting down all future possibilities, like all future options. Dr. Shamram Heshmat, professor emeritus at Illinois University, he wrote in a, in a Psychology Today article, he said this, he said, another key problem with making good decisions is when the decider faces an abundance of options. For example, Schwartz, who's the author of a book called The Paradox of Choice, Schwartz showed that shoppers who had to choose among 20 choices of jams or six pairs of jeans experience conflict and are less satisfied with their final selection. And after the final selection, one remains anxious about the missed opportunities. In other words, what he's saying is, is that it used to be that we would have FOMO, right? A fear of missing out. You know, you're by yourself. You see on, you know, social media, you get a text or whatever, like, oh, everyone's at a party. I'm missing out, right? The fear of missing out. Well, that has actually changed where the fear isn't so much missing out, the fear is actually of better options. It's not so much that I'm not at the party and I'm missing the party. The fear is like, I'm at a party, but there could be a better one that I'm not at. The fear of better options, which is, which is maybe why uh, some of you, and my guess is, is that this sort of um, fear of better options is a bit of a disease for maybe like... Um, millennials and down because this is maybe why you're a bit non-committal, right? You know, you get the RSVP in the mail and you really wish, I haven't seen an RSVP that has this option. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Where it was like, yes, no with regrets and maybe, maybe I'll be there. Maybe I'll show up. Maybe if someone I like better isn't also getting married on the same day, I'll come, you know? Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But the narrator comes to a conclusion. 
You see, there are many who are more interested, there are many people who are more interested in asking questions than they are in finding answers. There are some who are more interested in having never-ending conversations than actually coming to conclusions. This, this really is the essence of verses 9 through 12, right? Where the narrator is telling us that the teacher is, is a wise guy, and he's taught many things. He sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. In other words, like he's saying, like, this teacher is a good communicator. He's a good communicator. He can write things down well. People like to listen to him. But, verse 12, beyond these, my son, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. In other words, he's saying it's, it is wearisome to spend your whole life only asking questions, only forming hypotheses. It's a weary to the body. It's a, weir, it's a weariness to the soul in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3 that, that if you spend your whole life learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. You might go, Jake, are you, ask, are you saying that asking questions is bad? Like, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that asking questions is bad. We, we, had, we had six weeks of, question, of Q&A in between service. Like asking questions is good. We should be a thoughtful people. We should be an inquisitive people. We should be a curious people who ask good, who asks good questions. But there's a difference between asking questions with a genuine desire to find answers. There's a difference between that and asking questions as a way to avoid having to deal with the answers you're actually given. You parents probably know this really well, where you know there's a difference between your kids asking you questions because they're genuinely interested in getting an answer. There's a difference between that and your kids continuing to ask questions because they're refusing to submit to the answers you've already given, right? They don't like the answers you've given. So rephrase the question or change the topic, right? It's very easy to keep asking questions when you don't like the answers you've been given, or it's very easy to change the topic. We saw that a couple years ago when we walked through the book of John, John chapter four. Remember when Jesus is talking to the, to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, what does she do? When Jesus takes his finger and, and, and hits a direct nerve in relation to her relationships, Right? Here's how many husbands you've had and the guy you're living with right now isn't your husband. What does she do? She changes the topic. Like, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about the real life relational issues here. Where, where should we worship? On this mountain or on that mountain? She even asked a very religious question because Jesus hit a nerve. So it's very easy for us when Jesus hits a nerve, when we're confronted with truth and reality to continue asking questions, or to just simply change the topic. But instead of affirming this like never-ending search of the teacher, the narrator actually gives us a conclusion. And so what is the conclusion to all these matters of wisdom and money and time and control and justice and work? And pleasure. What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Where is the good life found? Verse 13. 
when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. You want a good life? You want meaning in life? Fear God and keep his commands. Because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. You want to know the purpose of your life? The meaning of your life? God's will for your life? Fear God and keep his commands. Now, what does it mean to fear God? I've, I've often heard it explained that to fear God is to have a, is to have a, uh, a respect for him. Well, fearing God is to respect God. And that's, that's not untrue. That's certainly not untrue. But I, it seems like if that's the only facet of fearing God, especially in the way that we think of respect nowadays, it seems like if we only think that fearing God is just simply respecting God, that we're actually losing something in what it means to fear God. Because it isn't that fearing the Lord and respecting the Lord are two separate things. It's not like you have to choose between fear, like terror and fear, or well, or respect. It's not that. It's that these things are actually inseparably intertwined. You, you could almost say like they're, um, they're stacked on each other. They, they overlap. I'll give you an example. So um, I've played guitar for... Uh, about 20 years. And the reason why I started playing guitar was actually not because I was interested in guitar. It was just, I was, I was not interested in being in band when I was in middle school. That's the real reason, right? I have since uh, changed my opinion on band, but as a, in my seventh grade wisdom, it really, my options were uh, be in band and play the saxophone or learn the guitar that we already have. Now, as a seventh grader, I went, I don't want to be a nerd. So I'll learn the guitar now. Okay. Van people, I've, I've changed my mind, all right? I've grown. So saxophones are cool. Uh, but I played the guitar. And so fast forward 10 years, right? And uh, I'm, I, I'm changing the vacuum tubes in my electric guitar amp. I won't like get musician nerdy on you with this, but basically uh, with this particular amp, you have to take the, uh, the back off of it and you're kind of like messing around in the circuit board to reach these tubes, all this kind of stuff. Well, uh, guitar amplifier, amplifiers have these things called filter capacitors. Now filter capacitors basically look like um, maybe like little rolls of nickels or something you might get, get at the bank. But basically what they are is there are things that hold high voltages of electricity, right? And a couple of reasons they do that is one, to filter out the noise from your guitar signal. That's why they're called filter capacitors. But secondly, is to have a storehouse of power for when you hit particularly low notes, because that takes a lot of energy, whatever, uh, to try not to bore you here, but, um, but yeah, to help you with your low notes. Anyways, a smart person, a wise person, uh, what you're supposed to do is if you're fiddling around filter capacitors is you're supposed to discharge them because they hold incredibly high voltages that can kill you. Um, now, on this particular day, as I'm messing around, I don't have what I need to discharge these filter capacitors. So as a thoughtful person, I go, I'll just be careful. Famous last words. Um, I drop a screw, drop the screw in like the circuit board, go to grab it, touch a filter capacitor. No joke, it sends me across the room. I'm not making this up. Sends me across the room, blows a hole through my, uh, through my fingernail, because that's where the electricity left, right? I'm on the ground, uh, sweating, shaking, 
it was a great day. But now, now fast forward to when we moved to Cedar Falls, okay? Uh, we move here to Cedar Falls, move into our house, and uh, there's a 30-amp breaker that needs replaced in our breaker box. So I take the front off because I go, I know electricity, and clearly, and, uh, and I'm standing there, and I'm looking at all the, you know, all the copper, all the wires just kind of going into this thing that feeds electricity into our whole house, right? And I remember my guitar amplifier experience. Now, in that moment, did I fear electricity or did I respect it? It was really both, right? Like, my fear of it fueled my respect for it. Like, I had a healthy respect for it. It wasn't because, like, electricity is some malevolent tyrant that is out to get me. It wasn't like that. But it was because I, I had actually known. I, I didn't just know in my head, like, electricity can kill you. We all know that. But I knew deep down. I, I, had, I had an experience with it. I saw for myself and truly recognized the weight of its power. And so instead of fiddling around in my own breaker box, which is what you thought I was going to do, all right, give me a little more credit than that. So I, call, I actually phoned a friend who's an actual electrician and went, hey, here's what I'm doing, you know, walked him through it just to make sure that my life insurance wasn't going to pay for my mortgage, you know. And so turned out fine. It was great. But here's the point. Even in a wonderful church like Candale. Too many of us, instead of viewing God as father, view God as buddy. We American Christians have entirely lost any sense of the holiness of God. That for many of us, my guess is many of us, if you're anything like me, we see God as like a nine volt battery. Useful, kind of strange, right? Why is it the only square one? Why are the other batteries round, right? It's kind of weird. Annoying when you don't have it. Nice to have it. We see God as a nine volt battery and not like an infinite amount of nuclear power plants. In the words of Carl Truman, I quoted him last week, I'll quote him again this week. He said, if God is not that holy, then sin isn't that awful and I'm just not that bad. Thus, if your view of God's holiness is shaped by the standards of your own mediocrity, then you are unlikely to worry too much about whether you're going to be acceptable to him. You see, one of the ways we try to get around the holiness of God, and I, don't, I honestly don't think we do it intentionally, but it's very easy for evangelical Christians to wipe away the fearsome holiness of God with the gospel. 
it's like, well, yeah, I mean, God, God is big and powerful and all this stuff, but, but, you know, but Jesus, right? But the fact that Jesus absorbed God's wrath towards sin on your behalf should not make us take his, hol- his holiness less seriously. It should make us take his holiness more seriously because, it, that, because if the death of the infinitely valuable son of God is all that is the only way to satisfy God's wrath, what does that say about his holiness? Don't hide behind God's grace towards you in Christ as an excuse to not obey his commands. Doing that only shows you don't actually understand grace at all. But this is the conclusion of the matter. This is the end of the story. This is the meaning and purpose and path towards the good life. Fear the Lord and obey his commands. It's it's all over the Bible. If you read through scripture, you'll see that God is not to be reckoned with. That that when God, when the glory of God and his presence fills a place, reveals itself to people, what they're doing is they're not pulling out their phones to like post it on Instagram and tell their friends about, oh my word, look at this crazy experience. No, they're falling on their faces, hiding, looking for rocks because they are terrified of this holy God. So we are called to fear the Lord, but we're not called to fear the Lord in the way that a prisoner fears an abusive warden. No, we're called to fear the Lord in a way that a child recognizes the powerful hands of their father. But also as those who know that those powerful hands are wielded in Christ, not for our destruction, but for our good. John Piper once told a story about visiting a guy in their church. He took his six-year-old son, Karsten, and they walk up to the door and and, uh, the guy opens the door and face-to-face with his son, Karsten, is this dog. Now, this isn't a particularly um, happy dog, uh, this dog was not impressed with Carson. You know, some dogs really love kids. This dog, not so much. Uh, and so face-to-face, like Carson, you know, six-year-old, I don't know, maybe like that. That's a big dog. You face-to-face with a six-year-old, right? And so uh, they, they had forgotten to bring something in from, from the car. So John tells Carson, hey, can you run back to the car, uh, grab this thing, and we'll keep meeting with this guy. Well, Carson turns around, starts running towards the van and the dog with a, with a bit of a growl kind of like starts bouncing after him, like kind of running after him. And the guy that they're visiting uh, peeks out of, you know, kind of peeks around John from the doorway and yells, Karsten, don't run from him. He doesn't like it when you run. Instead, just put your arm on his neck and walk beside him. You see, It's a terrifying thing to run from God. But if we will fear him and keep his commands, if we will walk alongside him, if we will walk and live according to his desires, according to his commands, according to the ways that he has designed us as humans to flourish, if we walk according to his commands when it comes to our sexuality, when it comes to our relationships, 
When it comes to the way, that we, the way that we steward our money, when it comes to the way that we use our influence and our power in, in, the, in the spheres of the circles that we are in, if we will walk alongside him and not run away from him, then his strength and his growl will be for our protection, not for our destruction. You see, there's a, there's, a, there's a difference between knowing that big dogs exist and having one right next to you. And my guess is, is that for many of us, we have almost entirely lost the fear of the Lord because we continue to neglect opening this book and seeing God for who he is and seeing us for who we are. We neglect to see how this God has acted and moved throughout history, the nature of his character and how different we are from him. We, we, we refuse to, to, to read these words and to get into, into passages like Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where it says, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Perhaps you've totally lost your fear of the Lord because you're totally unaware of how different God is from you. God isn't like you, but a little better. God isn't like you, but a little more powerful. I was walking backstage uh, last week after the services. I usually park out back here. And so I was walking backstage to go to the parking lot, um, get in my car. And as I'm walking back there, there's this little spider that's maybe the size of a tic-tac that's just kind of like scurrying in front of me, right? And I was just, I was just struck in that instance, like the difference in size and power and strength between me and this little spider is infinitely smaller than the difference in size and power and strength and wisdom that exists between me and God. And so I stepped on him and killed him. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. No. But you get what I mean, right? Like I am closer in many ways to that spider than I am to God. You see, it's amazing, isn't it, how, how big of a deal we think we are until it snows. Have you noticed that? Blows my mind every year. It's going to happen here probably in a month where we, think, where we think we have control. We have our plans. Think we're powerful. We think we're in charge. We're top of the food chain, right? And, and then this, this like light, fluffy flakes. They don't have swords. They don't have guns. They're not really terrifying in any way. Falls from the sky. It's incredibly pretty. And it ruins our lives. Like disrupts our plans. You know, we forget how to drive. Like I can't, we think we're such a big deal. And then this little white fluffy stuff falls from the sky and reminds us how not in control we actually are. What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Where is the good life Found, what is God's will for your life? You see, if you're trying to figure out, you know, what should my major be? Should I take this job? Should I move to this place? 
Should we make this decision as a family? Should I marry this person? Whatever. You're not gonna find the answer to those questions in the pages of this book because what God gives us is actually something better. What God gives us is a lens through which to see all of the other decisions in our life. And that lens is fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So make your decision. But know that there is a God who is unlike you, who will bring every act to judgment, whether good or evil. You see, when you understand how unlike God you are, you will live in wonderful, fearful obedience. Because when you understand how unlike God you are, you will also see that though he is so unlike us, he became like us to save us. Well, we're, clo- we're closing Ecclesiastes today, but we're about to step into a season where we get to be confronted with on a daily basis, if we'll have eyes to see it, we get to be confronted with and we get to see the wonder and the fearful amazement of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who so unlike us became like us and took the verdict of our sin upon himself so that the verdict of his righteousness could be placed upon us. And as a result, when we see that, would we be a joyfully fearful people who live in obedience to his commands for his glory and our good? So the the conclusion of the matter, the final word, the end of our series, Candeo, fear God and keep his commands. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you forgive us for the many ways that we run from you? For seeing you more as a buddy than as God. Would we be a church? Would we be a people? Will we be families and individuals who fear you and who glory in wonder and amazement at your amazing work toward us in Christ? Oh God, help us see you for who you are and ourselves for who we are. And will we fear you and obey your commands for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.